Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us um, as we are here, um, pinned between looking back at the birth of Jesus this Christmas morn and uh, what comes in the new year. Uh, it's almost like we have this great season of anticipation and of uh, the centrality of the gospel only to be swallowed up uh, by plans and by parties and by the pace of life that so quickly resumes. We ask that you would guard our hearts and begin that process even this morning where we refuse to go on into what is next without first sitting and pausing on what you have already done and its significance in our hearts. We ask that you be glorified in this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. It's what Ned Ryerson says to Phil Connors in the movie Groundhog Day as he steps off the curb into the pothole filled with muck and mire and slush. And this time of year, generally, there's snow on the ground, and there's slush, and it's cold, and it's wet. And so we know what it's like to step off of a sidewalk or to get down out of your car only to descend and to find your foot wet and your sock beginning to become soaked. And during our Advent season this year, we've been studying the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh. And next week, we're going to resume our series in the Gospel of Luke, beginning with the events of the cross, Luke's final portion of the narrative. But as we're looking at all of this, we are attempting to wrap our minds around the muck, the slush, and the cold filth that Jesus, the eternal God, stepped into in order to save us. We began our Advent series by focusing on Mark's account of Jesus' baptism, and for those of you who are paying attention, you might wonder why we're now closing by looking at Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. And that's important because far more than a fresh washing, Jesus' baptism would have brought with it all of the cruel realities and more that soaked Phil's foot in that pothole and chills our own soul in our worlds today. His baptism symbolized the beginning of his ministry, in the gospel narratives, but it also symbolized the end of Jesus's ministry here on earth. The baptism we enjoy as believers is generally a celebration of beautiful life because the baptism that Jesus took on himself, even today in Matthew chapter three, was laced with the blood of the cross. But as we've discovered, Jesus didn't accidentally step into this pothole like we often do. It's not that Jesus came and now he tried to make the best out of a bad situation. He turned, uh, life gave him lemons and he made lemonade. No, he was fully aware. He knew the cost. He knew the pain. He knew the cold chill. He knew the bite. And yet he willingly condescended from eternal glory, taking on flesh and living in our broken world in order to save those who have hope in him. We've often said that there's nothing at all in the world like Christianity. And that's because there's nothing at all in the world like Jesus. He is the Savior par excellence. No one is like him. If you study religions at all, or you watch even the religions that are subtly presented to us in our books or on TV, you see there's often gods who are cosmic and mighty, yet far from us and unconcerned with us. Or else there are heroes that are powerful but they're also weak and limited like us. But Jesus is both the God who is distant, but also the God who in his incarnation became 
like us. Only the Christian God bridges the purity of heaven and the mess of man by bearing the cost of that divide in himself. And I hope you've realized as we've worked through this series that a close study of Jesus' incarnation is a two-for-one. We're suckers for good deals. This is the best deal of all theology. Because in looking at the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God, we learn about God and about man. We see the impeccable wonder and attributes of the cosmic God, unbound, simple, yet infinite. Yet on the other hand, we get a close glimpse of the reality of humanity, its creaturely status, and the sinful world into which Jesus himself condescended. The incarnation teaches us about God and man because Jesus, as the God-man, is the only one who could bring us back from what sin has broken. And today, we're going to focus on the pinnacle of this redemptive work, this restoration act, and that's the cross of Jesus. And actually, in this baptism, where no cross is present, it is the cross that takes center stage in Matthew's narrative. And our main point today is this, as we're looking at Matthew chapter 3. Jesus was born to die so that the dead may live. Jesus was born to die so that the dead may live. And we're going to look at three points today. First, in looking at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, we're going to see the weight of water. Because the weight of that water demanded another baptism. And that's our second point. That's the baptism of the cross. And this is where we see the burden of blood. And then lastly... As a point of application, we're going to see the levity of life, the ease of living that comes for those who share in the baptism of Jesus. The weight of water, the baptism of, or the burden of blood, and the levity of life. So to begin, let's focus on the weight of water. And whether you're new to the Bible or not, I imagine there's a level of ordinariness to the passage that Isaac just read for us. Maybe you're here today and you're like, that's it? That's all we get? It's a baptism. Christians get baptized. Jesus was baptized. What's the big deal? But I want us to notice two issues in this text. If you have your Bible open to John chapter 3 or your phone, you can see two distinct um, uh, issues in the text. First, I want you to notice John's resistance to baptize Jesus. And second, I want you to notice Jesus' reason for pursuing baptism himself. And so let's focus first on John's resistance. Why is John resistant to baptize Jesus? If you remember way back to 1932 when we began our study through the book of Luke, uh, we learned that John was Jesus' cousin. And he came as a prophet to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight the paths for the coming king. And central to this preparatory task was to command any faithful Jew who desired to please the Lord to be baptized. And that's the context of what's going on if you have your Bible open in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 opens and Matthew says this, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does that repentance look like? Well, if you skip down to verse 6, it says this. And they were baptized by him, that's John, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But this immediate call to be baptized was actually bound up in a future reality which was to come. If you're in verse 6, skip down to verse 11. Notice what John says. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so here, kind of in the beginning parts of Matthew chapter 3, 
we've learned the framework and understanding that we need to hold in our minds to get to the scandal of what begins to happen in verse 13. And so there are three realities that this baptism holds in this text. And because John is a Baptist, they all start with R. Uh, And so those three things are a realization of sin, repentance of sin, and renewal by washing. People were to realize that they were sinful. They were to repent of that sin by turning away from it and turning to the Lord. And then they were to be baptized as a sign of renewal, of being washed and presented clean. Christian baptism today is very similar to this with one big distinction. What do you think that distinction might be? The distinction is where Jesus is. For John, it was a future event. Someone is coming. Jesus, at the end of Matthew, the end of his earthly ministry, here's Jesus' first part of his earthly ministry. At the end, he now commissions his disciples to go and baptize, not because of what is coming, but because he has come. They are to now go and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so why should you be baptized if you believe in Jesus? Well, first, because Jesus tells us to. But second, because those baptized include in them the three realities of the very uh, sense of security we have in our salvation. We come to Jesus by realizing we are sinful, by turning from our sin and repenting and coming to Jesus. And then we are washed by the renewing water of the baptism. We are renewed in the spirit, being baptized into his name, and belonging to his church. We're set apart. And so for John and for the church today, baptism not only marks off God's people, what do God's people look like? They realize they're sinful. They have repented and come to Jesus, and they are renewed by grace through faith. But it also speaks to the quality of people who come. Who are the kinds of people who come and get baptized? Well, By the end, we know they're new, they're washed, they're renewed. But the fact that they're needing to come shows us that they are not new. They are broken. They are sinful. They are at a need. They are in the wrong. They come to the water of baptism. They come to faith because they are dirty and stained with sin. They need everything that this baptism symbolizes. And it's because of that, the kind of people who come to be baptized, that John is resistant to Jesus' request. Verse 14, uh, Matthew says, John would have prevented him from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? This whole series, we've kind of been uh, pulling out the idea of the incarnation as humiliation. We cannot fathom in our minds the humiliation it would have been for Jesus to become a man and to die for sinners. And when you're at the grocery store, we often see tabloids that try to scandalize our celebrities and our heroes by showing them do things that are below their status. Have you seen those? Maybe it's like, here's Tom Cruise, you know, eating a Hot Pocket on his patio, or Taylor Swift with sweatpants on, picking up her dry cleaning. And these portraits are scandalous to us because it captures something that's unbecoming of their glory, unbecoming of their status. They shouldn't have to do this. They should have people doing that for them. They're the ones who ought to be served. They're not the ones who should go do these common things. There's an out-of-placeness to it, which seems to tarnish their otherwise impeccable, beautiful, and glorious position. And so for John, 
It was already outrageous to think that the eternal son of God would become man. Even in the womb, he had awareness of this leaping with joy (laughs) inside of his mom. But now, it seems in Matthew chapter 3, he's kind of reached the end of it. The scandal has been pressed too far. Here comes Jesus, the one who John just said would be God's Messiah, the one who John said is mightier than he, the one who John says will baptize with spirit and with fire, the one who John says, I am not even worthy to carry his gym socks. And on top of all of that, Jesus comes to John and says, baptize me. Matthew uses a verb, says John would have prevented him. It's a very strong verb in the Greek. If you're a basketball player, it would have been the equivalent to saying John boxed him out. He went full Charles Barkley, the round mound of rebound. He would have done everything possible to keep Jesus out of that water of baptism. Why? Because John knew that just like Tom Cruise and his hot pocket, this was below the status of God. Jesus had no sin. Jesus was God himself in the flesh. There was nothing for which Jesus needed to repent. There was nothing sinful that Jesus needed to realize about himself. And more than that, it was Jesus who was the one who would bring renewal to all things. And so John responds to this scandal as almost this PR spin thing. He can't imagine what the tabloids would say if they say, look at Jesus, the Messiah, being just like everyone else. You don't need that. People will look at you and they'll they'll think you're ordinary. It It will tarnish your distinction. This is unbecoming to God who is pure, radiant, and sinless. And instead he says, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. I'm the sinner. I need what you bring. You don't need what I give. And if we, like John, truly understand the glory of God and the beauty of Jesus, we too would prevent him from doing many things. We would seek to serve him in ways that are costly to ourselves. We would defend his honor and we would refuse to see him made low because of his beauty. But look at what Jesus says in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. John's resistance, I'm going to prevent you because I need your baptism. You don't need it. And here's Jesus' reason. Jesus' reason for baptism is tied to his righteousness. And notice how Jesus doesn't actually argue with John's logic, right? Look back at the text. He's not saying, you're right. I don't need this. He's not saying, no, 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 no. I'm not God. I'm just like you. He's not arguing with his logic. He's arguing with his timeline. Did you notice that? He said, let it be so now. You're right about me. You're right about what you need. You're right about who I am. But right now, now is the time for my baptism. Now was the time for God to be made low. It might come as a shock to you especially if you attend the university and they're talking about how, you know, religion is an is a, is a issue of the past where uneducated people just believed anything. Anyway, Athanasius, writing in the early church, found it hard to convince people that the events of the gospel were actually true. And when he was sharing the gospel with his own co-workers and his own neighbors, 
He found that these people were so smitten by power that they couldn't understand that if God would come into this world, that he wouldn't associate himself with the items of worldly power. He said something to this extent, saying that if they were to come, he were to come, why wouldn't he appear in a nobler part of creation or some noble instrument? Maybe God would display himself as the sun or the moon or the stars or fire. Maybe the air itself would just resound with the voice of God saying, here I am, dummies, worship me. If there were a cosmic infinite God, why would he come as a mere human being? Maybe you've asked yourself that question. Maybe you've shared the gospel with someone who has voiced in our own cultural uh, vernacular that same request. Maybe things like this. Well, why didn't Jesus come with more political power? Why didn't Jesus come and just tell everyone to love everyone and to accept everyone and to unite the world in the kind of love that we think is most powerful? Why didn't Jesus come and fix the earth and fix our issues of division and then stay and perform some miracles so that we could all see with our own eyes that this is in fact God? And Athanasius said, to respond to those who ask such questions, this, Let them know that the Lord came not to be put on display, but to heal. The Lord came not to be put on display, but to heal. And to heal that which is broken. You see, nothing else in all creation has gone astray from their understanding about God except humans. The skies proclaim the glory of God. The earth declares his majesty. The waves obey him. The deer obey him, the weather obeys him, but the human heart is the only thing in all of God's creation that is resistant to his authority and unwilling to give him praise. The human heart is sick and blind. And because our sickness prohibited us from seeing the invisible greatness of God in creation that Paul talks about in Romans 1, he took on flesh so that those who could not see him in invisible power might behold him in visible weakness. In other words, in the incarnation, God came down to eye level with those who refused to look up. Those who say, show us power, Jesus says, you've seen it and you're still dumb. You're still blind, you're still unfeeling. And this is the divine condescension we've been talking about. This is the scandal that got John's attention. And I pray it might get our attention today. The reason Jesus gives for such an unfitting baptism was what? For the fulfilling of all righteousness. What does that mean? It's one of the words that we typically say, well, it means righteousness. (laughs) That's not particularly helpful. What is righteousness? Well, righteousness, kind of easy way to think of it, is just, it's, it's rightness. It's putting back in place everything that is good and removing everything that is wrong. It's where everything is put back where it should be. And so when Jesus says to John, let us fulfill all righteousness, he's in essence saying these people have come in hopes that they will be renewed. These people have come in hopes that they will be forgiven. These people have come in hopes that they can please God. Let us give the people what they want. Let's start the process of making such forgiveness 
such renewal and such washing possible. I have come to you, John, not because I'm sinful, but because I have come as a substitute for those who are sinful. I have come to submit myself to this baptism so that everyone who is baptized in such a way might know that there is merit behind this ax. That it might be backed by something real, not a mere washing of water, but something that, that is met with the real substance of salvation that stands behind it. Leon Morris One New Testament scholar says it this way. He says, Jesus might well have been up there in front, standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with the sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of salvation that he would in due course accomplish. Jesus was going to make all things right. But it was not for his righteousness he needed to be baptized. It was for ours. Jesus was righteous. We were unrighteous. He was going to make purification for the sinner possible, renewal for the dirty a reality. And this baptism was Jesus signing on the dotted line. He was the guarantor that there would be righteousness for all who realize, who repent, and who are renewed. And knowing what he meant when he entered into that water in the Jordan, there was nothing heavier than that water. Earlier this year, maybe you were captivated with the whole world, it seemed, at the missing Titan submersible. It was found that uh, the pressure that crushed the sub was 400 atmospheres of pressure. Being dumb, I... Asked the internet what that actually meant. Being infinitely smart, it decided to describe it to me in terms of the amount of adult elephants standing on your head. The answer is that 400 atmospheres of pressure is the equivalent of 37 adult elephants standing on your head. Now you know. And under that pressure, under the weight of that water, it took a mere 20 milliseconds for that submersible to be crushed to a point of being unrecognizable. But the weight of this water in the Jordan was weightier. It was heavier and carried with it far more pressure. For Jesus knew that he would accomplish the salvation of the sinner not by mere water, but by his blood. This water marked him as the one who would bear the sins of the whole world. For God's people to be full of righteousness, Jesus had to be crushed by the full weight of their sins. And this is our second point this morning, the burden of blood. Long after Jesus was baptized in Luke's gospel, he talked about baptism again. This is what he says in Luke 12, verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And so if Jesus was already baptized at the beginning of his ministry in the Jordan by John, what's the baptism he's now distressing over? Well, we we know it's the cross. Jesus' baptism in the waters of the Jordan was a down payment on his baptism on the cross in Jerusalem. That cross, that baptism by blood was a sort of anti-Jordan moment. 
It's interesting to see how these two baptisms, by water and by blood, are one and the same as seen in their opposites. It embraced all the opposites that we see in Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is washed by clean water. On the cross, he is bathed in blood. In Matthew chapter 3, he is bathed in the presence of the Spirit as a dove. On the cross, he experienced a forsakenness from Psalm 22. At the waters of the Jordan, he is affirmed by the pleasure of the Father, saying, You are my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And on the cross, God's pleasure takes a different tone, the tone of the pleasure of God in Isaiah 53, where he speaks of the suffering servant. Notice what Isaiah 53.10 says regarding the pleasure of God. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So you have your Bible open if you're looking up at the screen there. You'll notice that at the beginning of verse 10, at the end of verse 10, there's a phrase, yet it was the will of the Lord, and the will of the Lord shall prosper. That Hebrew word translated will is the same Hebrew word for delight or for pleasure. And so the pleasure of the Father in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism, is also connected prophetically to the pleasure of God in Isaiah 53 to crush the very son who was baptized in that water. The will and the pleasure of God, Isaiah tells us, will prosper in the hand of the Lord's Messiah. How? What does it say? By making an offering for guilt. You'll notice the, the seeming contradiction in Isaiah 53. The servant is crushed, but what else happens? He sees his offspring and prolongs his day. There is death and there is life. And this is why Jesus is calling John to join him in fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus knows the cross is costly. He knows it will crush him. But what drives Jesus to the cross? What motivates him so much so that the author of Hebrews looks at the pain of Calvary and says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross? Jesus went to the cross because he knew that on that tree, as he clothed his eyes in death, he would see his offspring. He would see and save all who came to him in faith. This was the pleasure of the triune God, of Father, Son, and Spirit. It pleased the triune God so much that the Son willingly accepted this crushing as a substitute so that in him the guilty might be made righteous. Where the baptism of Jesus marked God's pleasure in Jesus' life, the baptism on the cross marked the pleasure of God in Jesus' atoning death to reconcile sinners by the blood of the cross. Regarding the presence of of God. Look at what Jesus says as he's dying. Mark tells us he quotes from Psalm 22 saying this, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the presence of a dove to the cry of dereliction. That's how deep Jesus's baptism goes. The apostle Peter says that on the cross, he bore our sins in his body. For the eternal son who knew only the joy of pleasure in eternity, only the unity of fellowship in his sinless life, 
on the cross. He was forsaken in his human nature because of your sins that he took. None of us ever have known a time where we did not sit forsaken in our sins. Jesus only knew that. And now in one cataclysmic moment, the eternal beloved was in his human nature on account of your sins forsaken. Think of, think of it this way. If you've had kids, if you've been a kid, it's most of you, unless we have some egg people in here. I guess eggs are kids too. Anyway, uh, let's get back to the text. Um, we know the joy of having intimacy with a parent, even when we sin. Being able to come and know there's relief. And it's the abuse of that that is so dangerous to our world today. And similarly, in a spiritual perspective, when we realize our sins, we can turn to the Father and repent. And what can you know? We looked at this last week. That he will hear in heaven and he will act. We know no matter how dark our sin, we know no matter how big the mess up, we know no matter how deep the habit, how scandalous the wound, when we go to the Father, when we repent in that moment of crisis, he meets that with forgiveness and grace and mercy. He gives us the pleasure of fellowship. He takes away our reproach. But Jesus suffered the weight of all the sins of the world without the promise of relief. There was no repentance for Jesus so that you might repent. He suffered knowing there was only displeasure in his sin, which was yours, not his. He knew he was going to drink the full cup of it. He knew that while he bore that sin in that body, he was forsaken according to his human nature. He chose to die without the relational relief of repentance so that all those who feel forsaken, all those who realize their sin might repent to the Father and be renewed by the grace. By his wounds, you have been healed. The starting point of the gospel is the love of the Father. Jesus does not twist the Father's arm into loving you. Jesus does not dupe him into bringing friends over for a sleepover. Jesus came for God so loved the world that he sent his son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. The cross shows us what God loves most. He loves his eternal son. And he loves his created humanity made in his own image. But the cross also shows us what God hates most. The sinful corruption of humanity. And because God loves what he has made, in creation, 
but hates what sin has made in depravity. He sent Jesus, who willingly moved first, because we never could. Because of love, God acted to love that which sin had made distasteful. Martin Luther says it this way. Now pay attention. This is is astounding. He says this, the love of God does not first discover, but creates what is pleasing to it. The love of God does not first discover, but creates what is pleasing to it. In other words, if we had to clean up our own lives, if we had to start sinning less and pursuing more holiness and going to church more and giving more generously and not hating in our own hearts and picking up our own rooms and not cheating and not doing all these things so that we might be discovered as lovely, we would have no hope. We cannot work our way into the loveliness of God. We would never be able to do it. But because God loved sinners, he would show his love for us by recreating us by grace to be objects of his pleasure through the work of Jesus Christ. He recreates in the cross what sin desecrates in the garden. Luther goes on to say this, Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. You in here who wrestle with assurance, who wrestle with the doctrine of the love of God, do you understand that? That the fact that Jesus comes has shown that, yes, there is eternal punishment for those who are in their sin, but Christ has come because he has chosen to love the repentant sinners. He makes you able to receive the love of the Father by clothing you in his righteousness. Jesus has not come to bear the shame of the cross in hopes that you might prove yourself worthy. He has not come to give you a great makeup kit and hope you don't ruin it. He has come to make you into what is lovely by giving you the lovely righteousness of his blood. Jesus endured the cross because all who come to him are loved. God creates life through death because Jesus was born to die for sinners. Those of you who are coming, do you know what's drawing you? It is the love of the Father, so come come further. Come further into his grace. Jesus goes from water to blood, from the dove to dereliction, from pleasure in life to pleasure in death because it is the pleasure of God to save people by being made low for them so that we might rise to worship him who is always exalted. John Calvin says it this way. In short, since neither as God alone could he feel death, nor as man alone could he overcome it, He coupled human nature with divine, that's the incarnation, that to atone for sin, he might submit the weakness of the one to death. And that by wrestling with death, by the power of the other nature, that's his divinity, he might win victory for us. Church, here is your victory. Here is the God laid low for you. 
because Jesus prayed, why have you forsaken me? None of the Lord's saints ever have to. This, this is the Lord's prayer. What he teaches his disciples to pray, that's the disciples' prayer that we just call the Lord's prayer. But no one can pray this who is a child of God except for the Lord himself because no one who comes to the Father in faith can ever be forsaken by the Father except the Son who was forsaken so that you could be loved. This is Jesus' prayer in your place. This does not mean that at times you won't feel forsaken. And our Lord models that. Was Jesus ever fully forsaken by the Father? No, he's the Son of God. It's the pleasure of God in Isaiah 53.10. But in his human nature, did he feel forsaken? And was he in a sense forsaken? Yes, he was. Paul says himself in Romans 8 that we sometimes, though deeply beloved, though justified, will feel like sheep led to the slaughter. But because Jesus took the full forsaking and the full punishment of our sins in our place, and because he rose again victoriously, we know that we will never be forsaken even in death. And this is our last point this morning. This is levity in life. There's a lightness we now live with because of what Jesus has done. Anyone who comes to faith in Jesus, anyone who is baptized into the work of his baptism passes through the veil of what is of infinite weight and now we walk in new life. Levity and lightness of life. Notice Jesus' final prayer that we'll look at in a couple months in Luke 23, 46. Luke says this, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now again, I want us to sit under the weight of what the eternal Son of God is saying in this text. We all have a natural fear of death. Even the bravest among us might say that, that we're not fearful of death, but it's the dying bit that we might be uncomfortable with. And here was Jesus, who existed eternally in his divine nature, but who is now experiencing something new. Death. The Son of God, in human nature, would die. His body and his breath would cease to live after that one final culminating breath. And right before that moment came, what was his only comfort? We sing of this. Do you know that? The Heidelberg Confession reminds us. What is my one comfort in life and death? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my Lord. Do you realize what Jesus' one comfort was in death? What did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. No one wants to be the guy who jumps first. We only want to go after we've seen the other guy come up safely. <laughs> but Jesus had to be. Jesus was not afforded the luxury of another going before him. Jesus had no mediator between him and God. Jesus had no substitute sacrifice besides himself. 
Jesus had no pattern of eternal and final resurrection apart from the same resurrection he himself predicted after his death. But what did he have? He had faith in the character and nature of God the Father, the indwelling presence of the Spirit, and the work that he had set forth to do. And so as the Son of Man died, he submitted himself to the Father. He faced that great divide by putting his Spirit in the only hands capable of guiding us safely. Dear church, if Jesus has entrusted himself in the face of death to his father, how much more ought we to? One early church pastor said that when Jesus committed his spirit to the father, he said he bestowed on us courage in the face of death, saying, those are words of a brave heart. He's right. Because Jesus took our death on the cross, the death we have yet to die is nothing to fear. Our greatest death comes when we realize, when we repent, and when we are renewed. That is the most miserable death you will ever die. Realizing you're dead is nothing when it comes to realizing you are depraved. One has a greater consequence. And so for those who come to Jesus, our biggest death lie in the past. Martin Luther says, the death that comes, the death we die in our beds, he says, that is but a kinder death, a child's death. It is nothing. We must then be responsible to live in the same hope Jesus has awarded to us. We must, in the faith, face of unknown pain, of the unknown of what is to come, entrust ourselves to God. But because the tomb is empty, our hope is not. We know Jesus' death has purchased for us life. Our hope is not only in faith, it is in history. Jesus really came. He really died. He really lived perfectly. He really rose vicariously. He really ascended. We really have hope. And so when death presses against us, when death does come, when our bodies are dying, commit your spirit to God. Trust in the Father. When sin and temptation seem to strangle any hope of life and it seems you cannot go on, commit your spirit to the Father. Trust him. Die alive. As a Christian, you never know how alive you are until you're called to die. What a profound mystery. How deep does our baptism go? To the grave. And that's it. Because Jesus took it to the wrath of God so that we might not have to fear that end. And so we endure faithfully. We endure reverently. We endure joyfully. Why? Because as Paul tells us in Romans 6, we were buried with him into baptism so that just as Jesus was raised from the dead, what might we do? We might walk in newness of life. We have it, dear church, because Christ's was crushed. After Jesus talks with John, if you have your Bible still open to Matthew 3, in verse 15, Matthew tells us John consented. When you come and have a little chat with God about the gospel, you must consent. 
you need to get out of your own way and trust in Jesus. To consent and trust in Jesus in the face of the unknown physical wave of death or spiritual temptation is only to consent by looking back at what Jesus has already won. He's won it all. He's proved himself faithful. Get out of your own way. Stop doubting his faithfulness. Stop thinking it's going to be easy. But no, it's always going to be life-giving. The incarnation is the heart of human hope because it displays for us the heart of God himself. It stands not only as a gateway into the experience of God's pleasure for those who come by grace through faith, but it actually displays to the world the pleasure of God, that the eternal, magnificent, triune God might willingly, out of his own volition, choose to manifest to his created his glory as Savior instead of merely as distant, splendorous God. He calls us to enjoy him by experiencing him in the salvation of sin. The Father and the Spirit were pleased to gaze at the incarnational work of Jesus. So too ought we to be for all eternity. We never move past Advent. We never move past a realization of what Christ has won for us in the flesh. This is the profound mystery that Paul proclaims. This is what unites Jews and Gentiles and males and females and rich and poor. This is what brings sinners to God. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been waiting to share two quotes this whole series. The first was uh, Herman Bovink's last week. If you weren't here, you go find it online. And the second is this. As we finish a series looking at the beautiful incarnation of Jesus, I want you to see how unique this gospel is because of how unique our God is. Dorothy Sayer, who has a beautiful mastery of language, writes this. So... That is the outline of the official story. The tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten. When he submitted to the conditions he had laid down and became a man like the men he had made. And the men he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero If this is dull, what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? We may call that doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. That God should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news. And those who did it the first time actually called it news. And good news at that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, All I want to do is sing the song that Johnny won't sing again, which is for a thousand tongues to sing, but that's fine. I won't hold it against him. (laughs) But we will never, never, never exhaust words of worship, even in eternity. We will never, ever exhaust help for the helpless here in our humanity. 
we will never, never find a limit to endurance in the face of temptation. Because there is never, ever a God who loved us like this. And so Lord Jesus, who came and lived among us, who suffered for us, who has risen to save us, and who lives to intercede for us. Take our hearts captive by faith in you and transform us from one form of glory to another. We pray all this in your name. Amen.